Well, today we would like to uh, honor our vets before we go any further in our, ser- in our service. And, and some people say, well, well, why do you do that? And, and the reason is because they answered the call to put themselves in harm's way in order to protect and expand our freedom. And so right now, what I'd like to do is for all the veterans to stand, men and women, veterans, please stand. And I'm going to ask you to stand for a little while, you know, just stand up and, uh, and just hang with us for, for just a minute. And we actually have a gift for you that they're going to be passing out and they could come out and start doing that. But, uh, and it's just a very, very small token of our gratitude. And so I'd like you to keep standing while I say a few words. We appreciate you. It's because of you that we have freedom and what's dear to us is religious freedom. If you think back, probably our, uh, we probably have vets here from World War II. If you think back to the context of that battle, that fight, Germany, no freedom of religion. They killed six million Jewish people. Japan, the emperor proclaimed, you know, he was, they believed he was God. And then Korea, North Korea, no religious freedom today. South Korea, there is religious freedom. As a matter of fact, they send missionaries all over the world. Vietnam, communist country. There were no religious freedoms there. And then we think about the the conflicts that have been in the Middle East in Afghanistan, in Iraq. Again, these are places where there is no religious freedom. You can't, can't be a Christian there without being persecuted. And here's what I'm saying. Freedom only exists in our world in places where veterans have paid a price. It's never free. It only happens because of a fight. Blood is always shed. And so we, we want to thank you. And before, before we, a while ago we had one of those nice church applauses, which is great. But as we show our appreciation to our veterans uh, before they sit down, I want you to do it the way you'd show our appreciation to veterans at a Browns football game. All right? So let's do it that way. Let's show our appreciation. Thank you for serving our country. Now you can be seated. And I didn't mean to bring up the Browns. It just kind of popped out. So <laughs> We're excited about some of the things happening around here. Uh, if you're kind of keeping track on what's happening with our building, we just poured concrete on the mezzanine level, which is kind of neat. And like I said, if you can get out there and check it out, we'd, we'd invite you to do that. Everything just looks great out there, and we, we are pumped. And and again, it just takes uh, maybe another, just a, a second to, 
just to let you know that if you're here at Grace and, and Grace is your church home and you serve here or you give uh, thanks for making our ministry possible and this building possible, you know, just want to thank you for that. Today we're starting a new series and it's called Shadow Mission. And the reason it's called that is all of us, and, and I believe also not just every person or every believer, but every leader in every organization has a mission and a shadow mission. And a shadow mission are the things that we drift to start focusing on and, and to the, at the expense of our true mission, our, our real purpose. And so we always have to guard against doing shadow mission when we should be focused on the real mission. And actually, uh, there's a book of the Bible that, that I want to look at today. It's the only book of the Bible that never mentions God. But it's a book where you can see God working behind the scenes in every chapter, on every page, almost in every verse. You see it all happening. And that book is in the Old Testament. It's the book of Esther. And I invite you to to turn there as, uh, as we kind of tell the story of Esther. And I think there's a lot that we can learn. And there's, a, there's three key truths that were true today and were true then that we need to keep in mind as we read about Esther's story. And the first truth is this. Events are unfolding all around us that appear to be unrelated, yet God has a purpose woven through them all. Does that make sense? We go through life and, and things are happening everywhere and all these events that are happening in our life and touch our life, they seem like they're totally unrelated, but I'm telling you, God has a purpose and we're going to see that in Esther. Now, this, Esther lived at a time when Persia or, or Medo-Persia was the most powerful kingdom in the world. And the man who was king at this time was named Xerxes, or in the Bible, he's also known by Ahasuerus. So King Xerxes, or King Ahasuerus, he is, is the most powerful man in the world. And if you're a movie buff, Think 300, the movie 300. Remember where the Persians were coming in, the Spartans were trying to stop them at the pass at Thermopylae. But anyway, if you're into that. But, you know, this, that's, that's what we're talking about, King Xerxes. Now, Xerxes was ruthless. We know that from Scripture, but we also know that from history. For example, one time as he was marching, he did two campaigns in Greece. And as he was marching his army from Persia to Greece... He went through many of his provinces because he, he was in control of so much of the world at that time that one of his uh, faithful followers, he went through his area. And this man who lived there was a rich man named Pythias. The guy was extremely wealthy. And actually, his four sons were in King Xerxes' army. And Pythias came to Xerxes and, and he gave, offered him a bunch of money. Uh, uh, um, so much money because Pythias was so wealthy that it would go a long way to funding the invasion of Greece. And Xerxes actually turned it down and not only turned it down, but he actually rewarded this man with even more money. He gives Pythias money. 
Now, Pythias did this for a reason, and he's feeling pretty confident now. What he does is he sort of hints to King Xerxes that he wishes his eldest son would be excused from military service and be excused from this campaign to be able to stay home with him and kind of take care of him in his old age. This so angers King Xerxes that he he kind of fulfills the request. He has the eldest son cut in two, and he lays both halves of his body on either side, and he marches his army off to Greece through the two halves of this son's body who then remained with the father. That's Xerxes, real nice guy. And he's, he's the guy that you have to know a little bit about his character as we look at this book called Esther. And it starts this way in Esther chapter 1, verse 1. Now it took place in the days of Ahasuerus, the the Ahasuerus, who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces. In those days as king, Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne which was at the citadel in Susa. In the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his princes and attendants. The army officers of Persia and Meda and the nobles and the princes of his provinces being in his presence. And he displayed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor of his great majesty for many days, 180 days. And do we have an next verse there or not? And when these days were, we do, hey, when these days were completed, the king gave a banquet lasting seven days for all the people who were present at the citadel in Susa. So if I could kind of paint from the greatest to the least in the court of the garden of the king's palace. All right, I got it all. Yeah, If, if I could just paint the picture, what's going on there is he's wealthy, he calls in all of his top officials from all over the world, 127 provinces, and then for half a year, 180 days, he shows them his splendor, his, uh, his greatness, everything he's got, his military, his artwork, his riches. He's displaying all this stuff for these guys for 180 days. It's a huge banquet, it's a huge party, it lasts half a year. And then at the end... He does kind of a seven-day finale where now it's not just the kings and all the people from all the province. Now he opens it up in Susa to everybody that lives there, the least to the greatest. And it's open bar time. There's drinks served without limit seven days. And he's displayed all of his wonder. And then the text says, when he... he, when he was merry with wine, which is another way of, polite way of saying it, he was hammered. When he was hammered on the seventh day, he decides now to show off his most prized possession. And that's Queen Vashti, his queen. Now, Queen Vashti was having kind of a, a more subdued, smaller celebration somewhere in the palace. And then she gets word, seventh day of Miller time, she gets the word and, there, and, and the king summons her into the presence so he can show her off in front of all these men that have been drinking for seven days. Now, why do you think he summoned her? So she could come in and do calculus problems and, and solve them, you know, or, or tell a few jokes? No, 
he calls her in to show off her beauty. And Queen Vashti kind of gets this. And and she kind of has an idea of what's going on in the city. And then something very surprising happens. She says, I don't think so. No. No, King, why don't you go ahead and close down Miller time on your own? I don't really want to parade in front of uh, these drunken people who have been, you know, seven days tying one on. So she says, no. He's furious. And so he gathers with his experts in the law, his kind of Supreme Court, and, and he gathers them together. He says, what do I do? How do I punish her? How do I teach her a lesson? And then they finally come up with a plan that he's going to make an edict, a law that would state that she could never see the king again. I'm not sure how bad of a punishment that was for Vashti, because, I mean, that was her crime in the first place. But anyway, that's the way it goes. So, boom, she's kind of banished from ever seeing him. There's a lot of irony as you read through Esther. And here's this man who controls a large part of the world can't control his wife. But, you know, that's a whole nother thing. Hey, I'm just saying, from his perspective. Wow, I wasn't expecting a pushback. I didn't include that in last service. I'll leave that out next time. Yeah, thanks. All right. So basically, both the Bible and history tell us, kind of, why do we get all this from Scripture? Why all this before Esther? And it's because... The Bible is telling us, just like history does, about Xerxes' character. I mean, do you get it? He's wealthy, he's powerful, he's proud, he's self-centered, he's easily angered. You know, he's, he's a little unstable. He surrounds himself with yes men. I mean, he treats women as property. He's unpredictable. And, and knowing his character kind of helps us understand the story of Esther. So now, he's in his kingdom and he's queenless. And now he's not hanging around with the Supreme Court. Another day, he's hanging around his bodyguards. And these guys are pumped up with testosterone, and they start talking about some stuff. And then pretty soon, they start talking about how the king doesn't have a queen. And so these young guys, they come up with the plan. And it's a, it's a great plan. It's actually a pilot of a TV show that we see today. Here's what they say. They say, Here, here's what you do, king. You get the prettiest unmarried woman from every single province, and you bring them here. And then you have your attendants and everybody do everything they can to make them look as good as they could possibly look. And then when they're ready, they get one date. They get one night with the king. And after you've done that with all 127 of them, then you will pick the best one. And when the best one that you like the most comes, you will hand her a rose, you will pick her, and you will marry her, and then you will have a queen. Sound familiar? Could you believe a culture would... Anyway, yeah, it's, it's the same thing. And so that's why he goes with it. He says, okay, yeah, let's do that. And so the edict goes out, and that's what happens, and these women are, are rounded up for, from all hundred... How many provinces? 127 provinces. He's looking for the ultimate trophy wife. I mean, that's what's happening. And now we're introduced to Esther. She's a poor Jewish orphan girl who's raised by her cousin, a man named Mordecai, in a foreign country. She ends up on the list 
and she just flies through the prelims and the semifinals, and next thing you know, she makes it to the finals. And that's kind of how it goes. And she shows up at Susa. I got a question for some of you ladies. How long, guys too, how, how, what's the longest you ever spent getting ready for a date? Anybody like over two hours? How many of you spent more time getting ready for the date that you actually spent on the date? Yeah, that ever happened? How many of you actually had more fun getting ready for the date than you actually did while you were on the date? You know? The prep time for Esther and all these women, 12 months. One year of getting ready for their one evening, their one date with the king. And that's what happens to Esther. Now, Esther chapter 2 kind of describes that, but it ends with a couple of side stories. And, and you got to know the side stories. And the side story is Esther, even though she's in this, the finals here, she never tells anybody, Mordecai tells her that she's Jewish, and she never tells anybody that she's connected to her cousin Mordecai that raised her. So nobody kind of knows anything about her background. And then there's a second side story, and the second side story introduces um, a, a little story that happened um, early on in, in the book. Mordecai is hanging out in, in Susa, and he hangs out at the king's gate where a lot of the leading citizens are. And he actually overhears about a plot to kill King Xerxes. And so now Esther's in the palace, so he lets Esther know about that. And then she tells the king, and the plot is foiled. So that's just kind of a, a little side note that happens in this history. And by the way, 15 years after this event... King Xerxes was killed in a plot involving his bodyguards, you know, just like that. So that's the way that went. So what you have is against incredible odds, Esther not only makes the semifinals, but just as you guessed, she's the one that's picked. Against incredible odds, this, this Jewish orphan in a foreign land becomes queen to the most powerful man on earth. And it seems... That Esther's mission in life is to be eye candy for the greatest king that lived at that time. But that's not right. Now, here's the second truth. We experience events in our lives all the time. And a lot of times they're, they're tragic events, tough events. But here's the thing. Here's the truth we need to remember. That Esther will kind of bring home for us. When we experience crisis... Any crisis or any catastrophic chain of events, it's an opportunity for us to embrace our true mission. Hear what I'm saying. No matter what we're going through in life and all these events, we talked about they seemed unrelated, God's weaving a purpose through that. All this stuff that's happening, no matter how bad they are, they are actually opportunities for us, especially as believers, to accomplish our real mission, our true purpose for living. Now, chapter 3 introduces another man in the kingdom, and his name is Haman. Haman 
is promoted by the king. He's second in the entire realm. Number two man in the most powerful country on earth. And he is a prideful man. Actually, pride is his downfall. As number two, he goes through the city and everybody bows to him. They bow to Haman, except for one guy, Mordecai. And because of that, Haman hates Mordecai. And he hates him so bad he wants Mordecai killed. But it's not just that. Haman's so prideful that he not only wants Haman killed, I mean, Haman not only wants Mordecai killed, he wants Mordecai's family killed and Mordecai's entire race killed. And Haman knows that Mordecai is Jewish. So he, what he does is he goes to King Xerxes and he tells, first he offers the king a lot of money, basically to finance his next seven day party. Hey, here's some money, you know, I'm going to give you for the king's treasury. And he goes, but I have a favor. There's some people in your realm who aren't good citizens. They kind of have their own laws. They do their own thing. They worship their own God. They're just different. They're kind of trouble. And so what we need to do is you need to sign an edict into law where we just eradicate them. We just wipe them out from the entire kingdom. And Xerxes... You know, he's just like, yeah, keep your money. And regarding these people, whoever you're talking about, fine. Okay, go for it. No problem. He doesn't even check into it. And so this edict gets made into law that says in so many months' time, there's a few months in the future, that the law is that anybody in any of these 127 provinces could, could identify anybody that was Jewish. They could kill them and plunder their property. It's just terrible. And it's signed into law, it's a done deal, and it's distributed to all 127 provinces as an edict from the king. It's kind of a a done deal. Now, during this time now, for years, Esther has been living in royalty. Nobody knows she's Jewish. But now Mordecai, who is Jewish and people know that, he hears about this edict that Haman got the king to do. And so he starts publicly mourning. And he's in the capital city and he, he, he puts on ashes and at, uh, sackcloth and ashes, which is kind of this public mourning deal where everybody knows he's upset. And Esther hears about it, that Mordecai is in, is in you know, covering himself with ashes. He's in sackcloth. He's mourning. And so she sends one of her attendants to go help him because she didn't know what's going on. Mordecai, who's sitting as close to the palace he can and be mourning like that, He's there. When the attendant comes, they offer him some clothes and stuff, and he refuses the help. And then he says, hey, you need to go back and tell Esther what the king just did. And he has a copy of the edict, and he gives it to Esther's messenger and says, go have her read this. Only she can help. She's got to do something to save her people. She's got to talk to the king. The servant gets back to Esther, and Esther reads the edict But then she says she knows it's actually against the law for her to go to the king unsummoned. And so she's replying to Mordecai, I I can't do that. It's a death sentence for anybody, including his wife, to just kind of barge in on the king. He's got to summon you. Or if you just show up in the outer court, he'll extend the scepter or not means you're dead. And so she says, can't do it. And then besides that, she throws in a little side note. She says, And I haven't seen the king's face. 
for 30 days. So she's saying, I haven't been summoned for 30 days. King Xerxes is not the kind of guy, kind of gives you some insight, to spend a lot of nights alone. He has a a harem, the 126 finalists, for example. And someone else has the king's attention, and Esther knows that. So Mordecai gets that response from Esther, and here's, here's how he then replies back to her in Esther chapter 4, beginning in verse 13. Then Mordecai told, these are the servants, Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, do not imagine that you in the king's palace can escape any more than all the Jews. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place, and you and your father's house will perish. And then here's the, here's the clincher. And who knows, he's telling Esther, and who knows whether you have not attained royalty for such a time as this. He's saying, Esther, don't you get it? The, the fact that you were beautiful, that you were here, that you happened to be in this foreign land, that you were picked to represent this one province, that you made the episode of Bachelor, and not only that, you won, you got the rose, and now you're living as a queen. That's not all by accident. Maybe all that happened, that's all shadow mission, just so you could be there in, as queen in the palace for such a time as this. This is your real mission. He's telling her, you've got to do it. And it's the same with us. We get caught up in whatever is happening in our lives. And we start thinking this is our mission in life. Because of just circumstances or jobs and family. And we just start thinking this is it. We think we go to the grocery store and we think what's our mission? Get groceries. I mean that's that's a shadow mission. God has a reason for everything you do. He is working through events. You have a job. Well, why do you have that job? Well, it may not even be a job you like. I just took it. It sort of was convenient. It was close. It met our needs. You know, paid the bills. That's just shadow mission. God has put all of us, especially those of us who are believers, God has put us where we are for a reason to impact for eternity, the world around us. And Esther, she embraces that. And so here's what Esther replies. Esther, beginning of verse 16, she says, Go, assemble all the Jews who are found in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my maidens will also fast in the same way, and thus I will go into the king which is not according to the law, and if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and did just as Esther had commanded him. So so the stage is kind of set. She gets over her shadow mission. She gets involved in a purpose that's greater than herself, which our real mission is always about. And she does it at risk. And, And she does it in a kind of an interesting way. What she does is she decides she's going to approach the king which could be a death sentence. And she does, and then he extends the scepter so she's allowed to make her request. And she says, I have a request. And he says, well, what is it? Let me know. 
He, kind of, he says, actually, up into the half of the kingdom, you know, I'll give it to you. But if she would have actually said, well, I want half your kingdom, you know, that wouldn't have turned out very good. That's just kind of a king talk for, I'll let you mow the lawn tonight. Or, you know, whatever. It's just, so she says, okay. And, and then here's the request. She says, what I would like you to do is come to a catered lunch. Come to a little party that I'm going to have tomorrow. You and leading citizen Haman, the bad guy. Want both of you to come. And the king's like, okay, well, what's your request? You will just come. And he says, okay, I'll come. And so he does that. They, they go. The next day they have the lunch. And Haman gets to go too. Now Haman is like, wow. Of all the people I'm invited to a lunch with just the queen and the king. Who, who's ever heard of this before? Huge. you know. And he's super prideful about it. But here's the third point I want us to understand. All these events, we need to get this. To understand God's sovereignty, that means how God is ultimately in control of everything and works through events. To understand God's sovereignty, it's crucial to understand that God's timing is always perfect. Now, we it's hard for us to see that, but I'm telling you, God's timing is always perfect perfect and we'll see that kind of perfect timing as he uses these seemingly unrelated events to work toward his purposes so Haman gets the the news that uh, he he gets to go to lunch and and so he does that and he is pumped up prideful guy and so he is like on cloud nine, walking through the city. Lunch is over. They just have a lunch. That's all that happens. During the lunch, by the way, Esther just says, and they're at lunch. And King's like, okay, here we are. What do you need? And she says, well, come to another party I'm going to have tomorrow. Come to another lunch, and then I'll tell you. And so he says, okay, we'll do it that way. And this kind of piques the king's curiosity. In the meantime, Haman leaves, and he heads back. Uh, to his house, and he is super, super prideful. I mean, he just had lunch with just the king of the queen, Esther the queen. Ask him to be there. And so he's telling everybody about it, and everybody's bowing to him as typical. And then he sees Mordecai, and again, Mordecai refuses to bow. And he is ticked. I mean, Haman, he gets home, and even all these good things have happened, he's steamed, he's mad. He's out of his mind with anger on this whole Mordecai deal. And he realizes, he tells his family, I can't wait the extra months. I don't know why I wrote that that way. I, I, this should happen now. And so his family says, well, just build a gallows to hang somebody and build it today. And then just go to the king and ask him to hang him tomorrow. The king's going to do whatever you want. And so he does that. He builds gallows 50 feet high in his fancy residence next to the palace. And then the next morning, he can't wait. He's going to go to the king and just ask him that he can off Mordecai because he's just sick of this. In the meantime, God's perfect timing. The king can't sleep that night. And when the king can't sleep, nobody sleeps, right? It's one of those deals. And so he tells his attendants, hey, come in, read to me. They didn't have a lot of reading material apparently back then because what they read to him is the chronicles of the kingdom, just all the stuff that's happened in Persia over the last several years. So they're reading to King Xerxes. He can't sleep. And they get to the passage about this guy Mordecai exposing a plot to kill the king. 
And so they read about that, and hey, there's this guy, and he found out about it, and then he told Esther, and then Esther told you, and your life was saved, and everything worked out. And he's like, wow, cool story. And then he says, so this Mordecai guy, was he ever rewarded or anything? And they're looking, and they're, no, nothing. We forgot all about that. And so the king's pondering this. Well, man, wow. And so now the next morning comes. Haman's ready. This is the day of the lunch, but Haman's like, hey, I'm going to go in and I'm going to nail this Mordecai thing right at the beginning. So he shows up at the palace early. He has to be summoned. But the king's still up and he's pondering this whole deal about this plot to assassinate him. And he asks his officials, hey, anybody in the court? And they say, well, Haman's in the court. Have Haman come in. And so Haman comes in. He's pumped up. He's going to, give the, he's going to ask the king this request. But before he can get to his request, the king asks him a question. He says, Haman... What if the king wanted to honor somebody? What would be the best way to show the king's honor for a man? Now, Haman's like, wow, I am on a roll. Because he's thinking, oh, the king wants to honor me even more. You know, I got this lunch thing coming up. This is great. And so he lays it on thick. He says, well, the first thing is you would get one of your royal robes and you would clothe the man in it. And then put a crown on his head and get the royal stud and bring him out and mount the guy on the, 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 the royal steed. And then take one of your top officials and then he will parade the guy around crying out to the whole city. This is what happens to a man that the king wants to honor. And the king's like, wow, that's, that's pretty good, Haman. Hey, go find some guy named Mordecai and do that for him. And Haman's like, no, you're kidding me. And so he does it. He has to do it. And so he he pulls Mordecai, leads his horse around the city, crying out, this is what the king does for a man that he wants to honor. And he does that for half the day. And he finally, it's like the worst day of his life. He goes home. He's exhausted. About the time he gets there and he's complaining to his family, all of a sudden the messengers from the palace show up and they say, dinner time. Oh, yeah. The lunch. Forgot about it. He's feeling better now. He's got the, the whole lunch thing, so he's excited about that. And so then he heads to the palace, and then you have it there. Here's this catered meal. Royal finery. You've got Xerxes and Esther and Haman. And now Esther's ready to put her plan into effect. And so we'll find out what happens next week. See, that's, or, or you could just read the book of Esther. I mean, it's in the Bible. You know, whatever. But here's the thing. So what? We're just looking. We didn't even look, get to the end of the story yet. So what? What's God teaching us? He's telling us that no matter what is happening in our lives, whether we consider it a catastrophe, a major major event, something terrible, a crisis, no matter what it is, God's people have an opportunity to do their real mission 
and impact people for an eternity. We can, we've been given by God a mission, a cause that's greater than ourselves, that he calls us to, but it's beyond us. It's not just about us. It's about others. And he calls all of us to that so that we can have an eternal impact. Now, here's the cool thing. Not everyone here is maybe used to coming to church, and and we know not everyone here would be a, a believer in Christ. We get that. But you have to understand how Esther's fitting into the entire story of the Bible. Remember, God creates humanity, the world, and the last thing, man and woman. And they populate the earth. And God is perfectly holy and just and righteous. And, and we keep doing bad things. And finally, he, he calls a man named Abraham out from Ur of the Chaldees in Iraq. And he comes to this new land that he promised them, what we call Israel today. And he goes there and he starts a family, Isaac and Jacob. And Jacob has 12 sons and their family's growing. And all of a sudden they end up down in Egypt and they're enslaved by the Egyptians for 400 years. And then God sends a deliverer for the Jewish people named Moses. And he delivers them out. And they finally, eventually, after 40 years of wandering in the wilderness because of their unbelief, they enter into Canaan, Israel, and they kind of conquer the land. And then they're ruled by judges, but they don't like that. The nations around them that they're constantly struggling with have kings, so they ask for a king. Talked about that not too long ago. And they go through this succession of kings. In the meantime, the Jewish people are chosen by God. And we know that the whole book is really the whole Bible. Old Testament New Testament. It's a one story. All these seemingly unrelated events are one story weaving to God's plan to redeem sinful mankind. Moses leads the people out. And God wants to give them a fresh start. And he tries to teach them and bring them back to morality. He gives them the Ten Commandments. Which none of us have kept. Not one of us. If you don't believe me, go read them. And we still mess up. Even though he told us what righteousness, we still rebel against him. And then he introduces the sacrificial system that says, it teaches us sin has to be paid for with blood. God's perfectly just sin has to be punished. And and that's a problem for all of us because we're all sinners. So for the Jewish people, he institutes the sacrificial system. By the shedding of blood of a lamb, they're covered for sins for a temporary amount of time, a year. But there's a promise that through the line of David, King David, a greater king will come, the Messiah, who will rule the world. With an iron scepter. And he will reconcile us to God. And that's what exactly what happened in the life of Jesus Christ as he fulfilled hundreds of Old Testament prophecies, lived his life. And we know that Jesus Christ was God. One God existing in three persons beyond what we can finite people can imagine as God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. The son leaves heaven, clothes himself in humanity, 
and ultimately voluntarily allows himself to be tortured to death in payment of my sins and your sins. He's the only person who existed in history that didn't have his own sins to pay for because he was sinless. And that brings us to today. The question is, are you a believer? Are you, have you become a part of God's unfolding drama to redeem the world to himself? And I know not everyone here would call themselves a Christian. I know some people, you'd call yourself a Christian, but you don't even maybe know what that means. Maybe because your family member was a Christian. Being a Christian, the Bible says is this. When you understand that you're a sinner, like all of us are, and you realize that the right penalty for our sin, the just penalty, is separation from God forever. We never feel like it's that bad because we don't understand who we're sinning against. That's the right thing because God is just. But God also loves and he loves you so much that he allowed his one and only son to come and voluntarily die for you to make a way for you to be forgiven. It's not automatic. So what do we have to do? Well, we know it's not by works. There's no thing, ceremony, that we can do to make ourselves right with God. We can do one thing, and that is put our belief, our faith, our trust in Christ and Christ alone for our salvation. Church doesn't save you. Getting baptized doesn't save you. Being a good mom or dad doesn't save you. Being a great citizen does not save you or even contribute to your salvation. Not by works, lest no one boast. One way, by putting our trust in Christ. And so before we close, I just want to give an opportunity for some of you to do that. Um, God, God knows you. God loves you more than you've ever dreamed. And God's made a way. And, and maybe you're here today. Maybe someone drug you in here. And your heel marks are all across our parking lot. I don't know. But maybe you're here for such a time as this. Maybe just to hear what I just said. So let's bow our heads, and I'm going to lead you in a prayer. Here's the deal. I I don't want to manipulate you emotionally or any other way. I'm just inviting you. That if you want to place your faith in Jesus, which is what the whole Bible's leading us to, it's as simple as, as just asking him for forgiveness. And you you can just express that faith, that new faith, to him in prayer. And I'd like to lead you in a prayer. You don't even have to do it verbally. You can just do it silently because God knows your every thought. Just make this yours. The only catch is it it just has to be sincere. And when you sincerely put your faith in Christ, that's what makes you a believer forever. And so a prayer like this. Pray along sincerely in your heart if you're ready to make this decision. Father God, I understand that I'm a sinner, Lord, that I've rebelled against you in that way. And God, I understand that I deserve separation from you forever. That's the right punishment for my sin. 
But God, I also know now that you love me more, more than I ever could know. And that you made a way at great cost to yourself. You made a way through sacrifice for me to be forgiven. And that's only through your son, Jesus. And right now, Lord, I place my trust, my faith in Jesus and Jesus alone for my salvation, knowing that I can't add anything to that. And God, I would ask you to come into my heart and help me to live in a way that honors you. Lord, come in and change my life. Help me to see my real purpose, my real mission. In Christ's name, I pray. Amen.